Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. I'm joined today by my fabulous co-host. Oh, you mean me? Thank you. you. <laughs> Laura Hodesey. <laughs> I'm and, glad to be here. <laughs> and Laura, we've been talking so much about setbacks in America um, as we look at what's happening with abortion bans in so many states. It's been really depressing. But today we have an amazing guest coming on. And I know I'm really excited. Dr. Anu Kumar is president and CEO of IPAS, an international reproductive justice organization that focuses on access to contraception and abortion. Dr. Kumar is internationally recognized as an advocate for women's rights and a thought leader in global health. Oh, don't we need that? We really need yes. that desperately. <laughs> you know, she also holds a master's degree in public health and anthropology and a doctorate in medical anthropology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And prior to joining IPAS, Dr. Kumar worked at the World Health Organization's Reproductive Health Research Division in Geneva and spent seven years at the MacArthur Foundation in their population and reproductive health program. This is a perspective we need. You yeah. know, she's also widely published in peer-reviewed journals and popular media and topics such as abortion stigma and decolonizing global health. And what we've talked about is often as activists here in America, we really don't have a good global framework. So we are delighted to welcome Dr. Anu Kumar. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you guys. You know, we have listeners who are going to be completely familiar with IPASS and have been following the work of your organization since 1973. But we will also have people listening who are learning about IPASS for the first time. So we'd love to just start with an understanding of why IPASS formed and what was so central to the work in 1973. So the thing to understand about the issue of abortion is that when it's done unsafely, it can harm and even kill women. And girls. And so back in the 70s, in the early 70s, when IPASS was formed, deaths and injuries from unsafe abortion were a serious concern uh, for people around the world as they are today. You know, unsafe abortion remains a leading cause of maternal mortality around the world. Uh, but it is a cause of death that is completely preventable. And so in 1973, which is a landmark year in many ways, right? This is the year that Roe v. Wade was decided. The U.S. government actually supported the creation of an early abortion device called the manual vacuum aspirator. Um, that device is still used today in Planned Parenthood clinics around the, around the country and also in refugee camps everywhere around the world. It's a very simple device um, to provide early abortion care. It, can, it is used by doctors. It can be used by nurses and midwives. And that was the genesis of IPASS in 1973 was you know, the creation of this medical device. But also in 1973, we have the passage of the Helms Amendment. Um, and the Helms Amendment, which was introduced by the North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, is an amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act that in effect denies access to abortion services for people overseas. Um, so no US government funds are used for the provision of abortion care uh, for people living you know, in lower middle income countries. So all of a sudden, this meant that the medical device that was created by US government funds could no longer be used by the US government. And so IPASS was created to take on that medical device to make sure that the technology, which was, a, was an innovative technology, was not lost uh, to the world. Um, and then slowly we realized that 
you know, you can't just have a technology without having the programs and the systems that make its use possible. And so then IPASS grew to working on health systems. And so still to this day, one of our primary partners are governments and ministries of health. And so we work with governments to train public health systems around the world, how to provide abortion care and contraception. I mean, I should add that abortion and contraception go hand in hand. Uh, we forget that sometimes, but they are linked. Um, and so health systems work. We also work on you know, advocacy and legal change, and then also working with thousands of community partners around the world to really change the way social norms around abortion, reproductive health, and women's rights are you know, thought of. So the central vision seems like it stayed very close to where you started with thinking about maternal health and, and basically helping women and girls thrive. Do you feel like across time, the vision has changed or the different strategies you might be employing to achieve that vision have changed? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the things have changed. We have remained entirely focused, as you say, on uh, access to abortion. Um, and so that has been our overriding uh, and driving force for the 50 years, nearly 50 years now that we've been in existence. But the way that we've approached that topic has shifted. Um, you know, in the beginning, in the 1970s, uh, the, the motivation around abortion and contraception was really around, um, you know, in, in, especially in the U.S. And, and other parts of the world, was really around population control. You might remember that back in the 70s was when Paul Ehrlich was writing and was very popular about the population bomb. Um, and it was a very control mentality. You know, we have to control people's fertility. We have to get them to have lower families, lower family sizes, because this is critical for economic growth. Um, that led to a lot of abuse um, and a lot of programs that were frankly coercive. So, you know, we have been really conscious of the fact that our work needs to be rooted and is rooted in a human rights framework and increasingly in a reproductive justice framework. And I think this is some of the parallels that we see with the US and the rest of the world. You know, you can have legal abortion, but does it mean anything if, you know, huge parts of our society cannot actually access it? You know, so we already, we're, we're, on, we're on the precipice of overturning Roe v. Wade in this country, but we've already been living in a country for decades where people had very uneven access to a constitutional right. Um, so that is why you know, the justice framework is so powerful because it allows you to really connect abortion with economic justice, with civil and political rights, you know, the right to vote, um, you know, you know, racial justice climate justice. Yes, this is a deeply important and fundamental issue, but it's important because it connects to so much up, so much else in the world that's important. It's like there's this huge push and pull, and it's a global phenomenon. And I guess I'm just wondering, underneath it all, this part that has to do with abortion, although there are people of all genders who can become pregnant, the underlying stigma about abortion and the and the coercion has landed for centuries predominantly on women and girls. And I'm wondering from that global perspective, what you see as the underneath, what's underneath that driving force to control women's bodies or girls' bodies? Do you see a, a pattern? Yeah, I mean, the pattern is so clearly about power. 
right. you know, who has it and who doesn't have it. Um, and the women and girls that have the least power, black and brown women, whether they're in the United States or whether they're, you know, in Africa, these are the women that are suffering the most and have the least ability to make decisions uh, for, over their own bodies. You know, when I mentioned earlier that, you know, unsafe abortion is a leading cause of maternal mortality, maternal mortality itself is really interesting because those deaths are not randomly distributed. They occur in particular locations. They occur primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. Just like maternal mortality in the US, the highest rates are among black women. Um, so these are not, this is not randomly distributed. Only certain people are suffering. Uh, and those people are the ones that do not have power. Um, and so uh, to me, that's really quite that simple. And we see it, you know, manifest in so many ways. Healthcare is one of them, but we see it in political power too, right? We, we right. see it in economic power. Why do women get paid less than men? We see it over and over again, it is really about power. Right. When you talk about sustainable abortion ecosystems, what does that mean? You know, at IPAS, we employ a model of, of thinking about this, uh, about abortion as part of an ecosystem. So it's a sustainable abortion ecosystem. And what it does is it recognizes that there are many factors that influence an individual's ability to access abortion. Mm -hmm. So money is a big one. You know, is abortion paid for? Who's paying for it? Is there insurance coverage, et cetera? That's a big factor. Do you have information? Do you have basic access to information about your body, about contraception, about abortion, about uh, you know, education in general? Do you have a functioning health system, private or public, that you can access in order to get the care that you need? Or, and or, it's not really an or, and, you know, and do you have the wherewithal to take abortion pills on your own? Do you feel like you have enough information and enough knowledge and enough power to actually be, you know, to take on that, uh, that act on your, by yourself, which, by the way, is a very safe and effective method. So, you know, we, we think about these multiple factors that really go into a sustainable abortion ecosystem. And the reason that that's important is because ecosystems need care and feeding. They need nurturing. They need to be resilient. And if one thing is out of whack, the whole thing is out of whack, right? And so one of the things that I've learned in my now 20 years with IPASS is that you can never let your guard down. There is never a time or a place where you feel like, okay, we're done. It's over, it's finished, we're done. We can just walk away now. Even Western Europe, which I know we look upon as, you know, like some kind of, um, you know, ideal state, there are things that still need to be done in Western Europe. So, you know, the, the ecosystem model and framing kind of allows us to kind of keep looking at the various factors and say, okay, we could do this better. We could do that better. You know, this is not perfect. And that's one of the reasons why we really think about, you know, the abortion ecosystem. So when you think about the, the places where you work, um, does that come into play with, you know, the imbalance of what it looks like there? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we, we use this ecosystem approach to figure out kind of what, sh what should we be doing as IPASS in, in some of the locations where we work and what can we do and should we be doing in partnership? Because that's really key. Right. Um, what should governments be doing? What should donors be doing? You know, like how can we all 
help to build and maintain this abortion ecosystem. So, you know, for example, you know, we've, we've done this kind of assessment uh, in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has, a, you know, a law that does permit abortion care. And, and so, you know, the group that met there to decide what, they, what should be pursued in terms of the ecosystem said, you know, that we really want to focus on post-abortion care and strengthening the health system. And we want to work at the community level because people just don't know what they can do. And there's so much stigma, um, you know, about this topic. And so these are very different scopes of work and no one organization is capable of doing it all. Um, So this ecosystem approach really allows us to take a very analytical approach and then divide and, you know, and and conquer in a sense, uh, the work that needs to be done. Wow. It's a big job. (laughs) <laughs> it is it is a big job uh laura but I, you know i have to say that we've been really successful and i think this is really important for your listeners particularly americans right now who are feeling totally beleaguered about what's happening in this country you know since the year 2000 37 countries have liberalized abortion wow the 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 march towards progress for abortion access and care is unmistakable. We are succeeding. Um, and we have to remember this. Uh, yes, this and what's happening in the United States is a major setback. I do not want to minimize it in any way. It is a huge deal. But we have also been really successful in changing laws and making abortion care a reality for millions of people. I mean, I just want to mention a few places, Ethiopia. The second most populous country in sub-Saharan Africa has legal free abortion care through its public health system. That's amazing. That's 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 the vision. That's the vision. Exactly. Mexico City, Mexico City, 15 years of legal abortion in Mexico City. 250,000 people have received care in Mexico City for abortion. Zero complications. Um, and now we're seeing throughout Mexico, state after state, I think we're up to nine states that have now decriminalized abortion in Mexico, which has a very similar political structure to the United States. The Democratic Republic of Congo <laughs> has liberalized abortion. Ireland has liberalized abortion. So anyway, I, I'm not going to continue. The point, you get my point. <laughs> oh. So, so do you think that this, because of what's happening in the U.S., will that change the face of your work at all, just involving the U.S.? Yeah, I'm, I'm really worried about it. Uh, I'm worried about it because I know that it will increase stigma. And because, you know, we've already been living with the Helms Amendment, which is the enactment of abortion stigma in policy. We have the gag rule that comes back and forth depending on who's in political power. And now if the United States uh, moves to criminalize abortion, it's going to further stigmatize abortion care. And it's going to stigmatize uh, people who need abortions as well as providers and health systems. You know, So I, I'm really worried about the stigma. This is also going to be a huge victory for the anti-rights movement. And they are going to feel really powerful and strong uh, and they're going to try to do more, um, you know, and particularly in places where they have traction, uh, like East Africa. There's a lot of activity and activism there from the anti-rights movement. So I'm worried about that. And I'm also worried, frankly, that a lot of funding and donors will focus on the U.S. 
hmm, because people are really freaked out, understandably. But this is a global problem, and the U.S. is part of the planet. Um, so we really have to start thinking about building bridges between the United States and the rest of the world. But I'm worried that funding will be, you know, directed to the U.S. and 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 will neglect global issues. Already, global health is much less funded um, than U.S. domestic issues. So that that's another concern. It's concerning to me that we have so much funding in the U.S. and yet we're still failing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it should be a concern. I think donors, I think this is a really good moment for donors to say, what have we been actually getting for our money? You know, how, how have we been, you know, to me, the strategies that have been pursued in the U.S. have been limited and, um, and, and unsuccessful because they did not take an ecosystem approach. Mm-hmm. We yeah. focus primarily on litigation and electoral politics. And that's not sufficient, as we are clearly seeing. Right, right. So can you expand a little bit about that? We can consider America or a different country where there's work to be done. And so help us think through if we were looking at, um, let's just call it country A, wherever it is. If you look at it and think things are not in balance here. How do you approach it when you sit down at the, at the at a work table with people who want to make progress? How do you start unpacking that ecosystem approach? I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, we can give an actual example of uh, you know Mexico is actually a great example. So you know, we worked for years since 1995. IPAS has worked in Mexico, and for years the law was restricted in Mexico. Um, so and it, and it was clear that it wasn't going to change. So spending effort and time on changing the law. in the 90s was not smart. We didn't have enough money to do it. It just wasn't going to move the needle. So we worked instead with health systems because post-abortion care is legally allowed. Post-abortion care is the provision of abortion care in cases of miscarriage or where a woman has self-induced and then winds up in in a hospital. So post-abortion care is allowed. And in Mexico, you know, the legal uh, rules were that rape was a legal indication for abortion, but nobody was implementing that indication. Mm-hmm. So we said, hey, wait a minute, why don't you start implementing the rape indication? And so we work with health systems and health providers, the Ministry of Health, like I said, we've, you know, we work with governments. Um, and so we started implementing what is legally allowed. Then we started working with um, community organizations to, you know, to, because one of the things that's true in Latin America is that misoprostol, which is one of the pills that's used in medical abortion, misoprostol is widely available. Okay, so women need to know how to use misoprostol. So you start, you know, we started sharing information about misoprostol use. Then when it became clear that there was, you know, a political opening, we, we were working in partnership with five very powerful organizations. IPAS was among those five to really begin to think about how the politics and the policy could change and the legal advocacy could happen. We are not a political organization, but others in the group were and are. Um, and so when the window of opportunity opened for there to be legal change, which was a political opportunity, our partners were able to jump in and say, yeah, now we want to, you know, we want to move forward with changing the law. The law changed in Mexico City. And in Mexico, there is actually a provision that within one month of a legal change, standards, clinical standards and guidelines have to be written. Well, that's where we come in. Wow. That our, our work on health systems over the years was like, yeah, this, we got this. 
And our relationship with the Ministry of Health of, the, of Mexico City meant, meant that we could very easily and quickly write those clinical standards and protocols working with the government and make that a reality. So we went from no abortion to legal abortion in Mexico City to provision of abortion care in a month. Wow. Wow. That's such a great example of collaboration. Yeah. And like coalition building because yeah. people say, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but someone originally said, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go further, go together. So it sounds like you are living that. Yeah. I mean, we have to, we have, you know, there's in the beginning of it, especially in the early days of bypass, there were so few people working on this topic. I mean, you know, when I started 20 years ago, I used to joke that we'll work with anybody that'll talk to us, you know, because there was, you know, there were so few people that were even willing to have meetings with, you know, my, my uh, colleagues from back, you know, in those early days would talk about meetings about, that they were not, you know, they were not invited to, or, you know, they would want to have set up meetings with donors and people were afraid to talk to them. And, you know, it was that level of stigma and fear. So, but, and so now we have a whole array of partners um, that are wanting to work with us. Uh, and, you know, we remain, because of our 50 years, the leading agency on, on this topic. I mean, you go anywhere in the world, and if you want to work on abortion, you will hear that IPASS is the organization that you need to work with. I want to make sure people who are listening, if they'd like to be supportive in some way, how can they further the work you're doing from their desktop or with their phone or laptop? What can they do to get a, in alignment with your work? Yeah, well, so, I mean, first of all, I would love for people to follow us on social media because one of the critical things that we need to do in the U.S. and around the world is to frame this issue appropriately. You know, it needs to be framed and talked about as a health issue and as a matter of justice and human rights. And so, you know, amplifying messages that IPASS has, you know, I think that would be really helpful. Um, obviously, we are big believers in... Um, uh, protests uh, and fighting for what's right. Um, I think it's one of the things that I have learned over the years that it's really important to have feminists and activists on the street really fighting for what they believe in and fighting for the vision that we want um, uh, to see in the world. And it's really important for, for activists who are in positions of power. You know, they exist. There are people in political office. There are people in the corporate sector. There are people in higher education who are activists um, and we all have a role to play in actually amplifying and creating the world that we wanna see. So I, I think the interplay between sort of the activists on the street and the activists in corridors of power is really important and key. Um, and then of course, donate, you know, I mean, I, we need, we are supported by donations um, and we rely on, on donations. And I should add that we, because of what we do, do not get funding from the US government. Um, which is the largest donor in global health, nor do we get funding from the Gates Foundation or we get very limited funding from the Gates Foundation because they don't support abortion. They support contraception, but they don't support abortion. So in fact, there are not as many donors as you would think. <laughs> Even donors that say, oh, we support women's rights, they don't always go there when it comes to abortion. So, you know, donations and funding is, is critical. Well, we definitely go there <laughs> um, and we would love to have you back. This is a fascinating chance to think about 
an issue that we care about so much, but to think about it with, with much more wide open parameters. Um, so we're so grateful that you're here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'd love to come back. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 